I'm not going to get into a back and forth with Donald Trump, but what I will say is this. When I ran for re-election in 2013, I got 60% of the vote. When he ran for re-election, he lost Joe Biden. I'm happy to have that comparison stand up because that's the one that really matters. From Pacifica Radio, this is the broadcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. Also in California, on KFOI, Red Bluff Redding, KKRN Round Mountain, KGOE Eureka. In Oregon, on KYAQ on the Central Coast, KSO in Cottage Grove, KEPW in Eugene. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania, WLRI, Maui, Hawaii, KAKU, Columbus, Ohio, WGRN, Palinville, New York, WLPP, Rochester, New York, WRFZ, New Orleans, Louisiana, WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico, KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire, WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas, KPSQ, Seattle, Washington, KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin, WADR, Minneapolis, St. Paul, AM 950 KTNF and coast to coast and around the globe streaming on the internets on the Progressive Voices channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio and Detour Talk. Blanketing the globe five days a week, usually hosted by Brad Friedman and the wonderful Desi Doyen, but uh, they're off today. So you got me. I'm Nicole Sandler and happy to be here. And I've got a busy show for you today. So just a couple of things in the news that we're going to blow through really quickly. Like Mark Meadows, former, former guy, chief of staff, who was a no-show Friday for his deposition, ignored the subpoena. And ooh, Benny Thompson, the chair of the select committee investigating what happened on January 6th, said they may refer him for criminal charges. And of course, just as we go to press... There's a slew of breaking news. So let's start with this one. Merrick Garland indicted Steve Bannon for contempt of Congress. That's news that Mark Meadows probably wishes had broken yesterday because he's now looking at a similar fate. And then this story just broke. Summer Zervos, remember her? The former Apprentice contestant who accused Donald Trump of sexual harassment. And then he attacked her because of the allegations. So she sued him for defamation. Well, on Friday, Zervos abruptly ended the lawsuit. She says she still stands by the allegations, but has dropped the lawsuit? All right, there's got to be more to this story. And finally, Britney Spears is a free woman. A judge ended the conservatorship that had control over her life for the last 13 years. And the COP26 climate conference in Glasgow, Scotland is winding down if they can come up with their end-of-conference paper, the Glasgow Agreement. And if they don't get it done, they may extend the conference a couple of days because I guess that's what you do. All right, let's get into it. I've got a couple of interviews to share with you today. A little later on in the program, we're going to hear a a conversation I had with Dave Zirin, my favorite sports writer, uh, the only sports writer that I really know and follow. He writes for The Nation, He hosts the Edge of Sports podcast, and he's just released the book, The Kaepernick Effect. It's not necessarily about Colin Kaepernick, but about the effect that he had on so many others. Stick around for that. I promise you'll like it. But we're going to start today with another candidate running for governor of Florida. As you may know, my show, I'm Nicole Sandler, I'm based in South Florida, and so Previously, on other editions of the broadcast, I've featured interviews with both Charlie Crist and Nikki Freed, who are the two already declared candidates to run against Ron DeSantis for governor. Well, we have another. A third person has thrown her hat in the ring. And, well, now I'm going to introduce you to Annette Tadeo. You're state senator. You're up in Tallahassee. Things are nuts right now. So we'll get to the the governor's race in a moment. But tell us what's going on in Tallahassee right now. Well, we have a governor that has decided to call a special session. 
And it, it's insane. I mean, you know, I, I find it just amazing that they spent all this time saying that, you know, that the Democrats don't vote for Democrats and especially his community, the Hispanic community telling Hispanics, oh, my gosh, they're going to bring Venezuela style, you know, kind of socialism. Be, right. Be careful. Be careful. Right. And, and here we are. He's the one that's doing it. He's trying to tell private businesses what to do, what not to do. Um, he, he's trying to impose his way or the highway. Um, he's trying to punish school boards for doing what they were elected to do, which is to protect the kids. Uh, and he's trying to, to defund public schools. It's crazy. <laughs> right now, now the last I heard, um, Leon County, where Tallahassee sits, was fined $3.5 million. It was it was $5,000 per county employee because there was a vaccine mandate in place. 14, count them, 14 uh, county employees decided they didn't want the mandate, so they left. Uh, that left um, uh, like 700 others. There were, I think, 714 employees, something like that. And so the state fined the county $5,000 per employee who were subject to this mandate. A county the size of Leon County can't afford that kind of money. Is that what this special session is about? Or is it about one of the other crazy things he's done? Well, we'll see, right? Uh, we'll see. But it's supposed to be about punishing uh, businesses, although I think they're walking that back a little bit because, as you know, uh, there's a lot of influence here <laughs> uh, of, of of the lobby core and business. And, and clearly a lot of people are like, what, what, what do you mean? But it really does create a problem because we, we do have a, a federal mandate uh, on businesses with 100 or more employees. And we yep. do have... Uh, you know, so, so it, it just creates this whole nightmare scenario. Never mind that we already went through a nightmare scenario with the cruise ships. Right. And I stood on the on the Senate floor saying, what what is this? What are we doing? Like, literally, you know, the in order for them to start their ships again and accept people to come on their ships. Specifically, they were told, here's what you need to do to make sure that you can go on the ships and so they wanted to do whatever it was that was necessary, whatever the experts said that was necessary for them to get it going again. And please understand, this is not just about the cruise industry. This is about a major industry in Florida where a lot of jobs, a lot of people yes. depend on this industry and a lot of small businesses that have a lot of work because so many people come to Florida to take these cruise ships. So, I mean, here we were and I was I remember standing on the floor of, of the Senate and saying, what are we doing? This is insane. Why are we telling private businesses what they should and should not do in order for them to keep not just their employees safe, but their customers safe? Right. To give people the ability to feel, feel safe about going on a cruise ship. So now we're talking about, for example, Disney. Disney has a mandate. Yes. Like, are we going to now tell Disney not to tell their employees? <laughs> What they can and cannot do. I mean, look, the last time I checked, when you work for somebody, if they tell you, and I know I've been in many of businesses where, you know, in order to walk into this business, you have to wear a hat, a hard hat, or you have to wear this vest. Sure. Or you have to, there's all kinds of rules and regulations with regards for safety. Of course. So of course. if the business feels that is in their best interest for their safety of their employees and whoever the customers may be, that they should get a vaccine. I I can't believe the government is going to tell them not to do this. And by the way, that's that's what Maduro in Venezuela does. That's right. He tries so, to tell private business what to do. Right. But something else that's going on now, the University of Florida has told three professors that they are not allowed to testify in a suit brought against the state over the new changes to our voting laws. That's an area they're experts in. And the governor, now the state is telling them, well, you can testify if you really want to, but you can't do it during working hours and you will not get paid if you go during work. I mean, what, what, what is this? Where are we? Again, again, it, it, it looks like Venezuela and Cuba. 
And so for for all the scaring that they did, saying that if you elect Democrats, all these things are going to happen, they're the ones that are doing it. And I will tell you, I am flabbergasted at this situation with the professors. And I think we are going to see, but I think a lot of things are being done by a lot of these universities. Please understand, we we decide their budget. The governor has a lot of say on a lot of these things. He puts the, the people on the boards of these schools. And so it really is a, it's a lot of influence. And as we now find out, even the hiring of Ladapo, the oh. new Surgeon General, was what it came about in, in a very strange and fast-tracked kind of way. But I want to go back to what you said about the professors, because I want you to know this suit is so important. This is about SB 90. SB 90 is a bill that I saw first in my committee. I am vice chair of ethics and elections in the Senate. And I know it's not normal for for a Democrat to 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 have fair vice chair of things. But, you know, again, this is this is the respect I have earned for my colleagues, even across the aisle. And I will tell you from the get go with that bill, I was like, this is a bad bill. Like, what are we trying to fix? DeSantis went around the country saying, oh, you guys need to copy what we do in Florida. Florida is so awesome. Florida, Florida did a great job with elections. And 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 look, I didn't like the results. Right. But I know that things went well. Like, I'm not going to say they didn't go well. So what are we trying to fix? So wait, wait. In this lawsuit, we find out through discovery that there were text messages going from the lawyer of the Republican Party to the chairman of the Republican Party, who is my colleague in the Senate, Mm -hmm. Senator Reuters, and to the chairman in the House who was uh, moving this bill. And in those text messages, the lawyer is telling them, no, 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 keep this, take this out. You got to make sure that you make it more difficult to vote by mail because Democrats got too good at it. Remember, they used to win vote by mail. Right. Crazy. And they loved vote by mail. But we finally get with it. And we are now and obviously because of the pandemic as well, we got good as Democrats. And all of a sudden they want to limit. They want to not allow. They want to put, you know, all kinds of barriers in the way for you to be able to vote by mail. And I just think it's outrageous. We should be encouraging more people to vote by mail. Frankly, I mean, it it costs so much less. I know everything about it makes sense. I've been doing it for 10 years, but yeah, but they, 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 they're making it harder. This is what they're doing. But I, but Nicole, I just want to make sure that people know that the reason they don't want these experts to go to court and say what they and their expertise think is because this case now there's all kinds of stuff here showing that this bill was not passed for the good of the voters, was not nope. passed because they needed to fix something. It was passed because they're afraid of that of us winning if we're allowed to vote. Of course. Well, that's always it. It's it's these voter suppression laws are to keep people who are prone to vote Democratic from voting. That's and all it's, it's about. Black and brown. Let's be mostly clear. about black and brown minorities. Exactly. 100%. Um, so but you're in the Senate. And I need to ask you because I just told the story about this new so-called Surgeon General and what he did to your colleague, Tina Polsky. Now, how is she doing? Because we learned that she is fighting cancer. She's going through chemotherapy and he refused to put a mask on when he went to her office um do you still do you you guys have to confirm him or he's already in no we have to confirm him and um and frankly it is just appalling what he did and and in all fairness to the president of the senate he is senator simpson he did send a a letter saying that this was unacceptable and that in our offices we we can we can ask people to wear a mask if we feel uh-huh. that that's what they need to do. And each, you know, that, that we need to respect. We have, we, I mean, look, you have to, no matter how you feel about 
people on the opposite side of the aisle, you have to respect the institutions. And we've lost respect for the institutions. Like we don't even, we don't even have some decorum about it. The whole thing is just outrageous to me. And, and frankly, I, I had already said this guy should not be uh, confirmed. Mm Mm-hmm. Period. He should but not. that was before he did the Tina wow. Polsky thing. Right. I just thought from the day he was he was announced, I put out my comment and I said, I'm sorry, but this is the guy that stood on the stairs, remember, with all of their coats, and he was standing next to the woman with the with the, something about the sperm and the th- I mean, oh, that was it. Oh my stuff. God, he was with he that. Was there. Oh my goodness. Yes. That's what I'm trying to tell you. I'm like, wait, this is crazy stuff. Like, what? Like, at what point are we going to just go, okay, th- this is insane? And again, you can have differences of opinions about policy, but you also need to understand that our Surgeon General is supposed to be here to protect against pandemics, like situations for the entire public. I mean, it's just amazing to me. It's it's so sad. I've had a lot of conversations with a lot of doctors and they're all like flabbergasted at what's going on to suggest that you can't talk because you had a mask. Yeah, right. Right. But somebody pointed out, you know, he's a doctor, surgeons in the operating room. The most important thing they can do is communicate with the people who are assisting them and others in the in the operating theater. And they do it with a mask on. So his excuse was, I can't communicate with a mask on. Bull. That's nonsense. Yeah. He's Total just, yes. Yeah, so th- this whole thing is so disturbing. Annette Tadeo is our guest. And again, she is running for governor of Florida. What made you decide to do this? You came in a little late to the race. Nikki Freed and Charlie Chris had both declared. So they're a bit ahead of you in terms of getting their name recognition and fundraising. What made you ultimately decide to run? Well, first of all, I don't think it's late. We're still a year a away. A year away, the right. They were election. early. Yes. So they were just yes, early. They- but but I will say that part of it is I, I really uh, wanted to give uh, time to, to for me to go across the state, to have the conversations, to see if there was an interest for a candidate like me. And frankly, as more time went by, more people were like, please run, mm. please run. We need we need someone that we can get excited about is what I heard. We need someone that has we've known as a fighter. Um, and someone who has, you know, strong principles and has not deviated from them no matter what and, and is willing to go to the mat and fight for our principles. Because, again, I actually get things accomplished here, which means I work across the aisle. Mm-hmm. But, but there are things and there are principles that you never get away from and that you need to stand up for. And, 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 and I mean, there's just. We need to be proud of what we stand for, and we know we can win in this state if we are proud with what we stand for. Because I will tell you, one of the things that I think we as Democrats have made a mistake about is that we don't do enough of talking about the things that we care for, right? Mm -hmm. For example, Medicaid expansion is something that I know we can get done. I know we have the votes. If I've learned one thing the time I've been here in Tallahassee is to count votes and to know where the votes are and to know where they're not and and to be able to either kill bills or pass bills. And and I know that's one that we can do, especially if you have the veto pen to sort of push a few last mm-hmm. outstanding votes. Mm-hmm. And, and that is something that unfortunately we as Democrats have not done a good enough job of selling to Floridians, right? Because right. they go, oh, it's going to cost Florida so much money. Well, that's BS because you know the number one expense in Florida in the budget is our health care. Sure, sure, we spend a ton of money because of politics. And here's something that I want Floridians to know about, and that is that we actually, you and I, who have health insurance, all of us who have health insurance, have a hidden tax that we pay in order to cover those 1 million Floridians who do not have health insurance. How do we pay for that? We pay approximately 2,000 additional dollars in a hidden tax every time we go to the hospital when we have insurance to cover for the uninsured. And by the way, that 
that study of that amount and that hidden tax doesn't come from liberal Lanette Tadeo. No, it comes from that super duper liberal group, the Florida Chamber of Commerce. <laughs> they did the study and they said, this is a hidden tax. This is a stupid business mistake for us not to expand it. We're leaving money on the table and it is, it's crazy. But you know, we try to go with the heart. Oh, we need people to have health insurance. We need to talk about the money and the dollars and cents too. We can do that too. We right. can talk about the heart. We can talk about the well, and and if we had taken the federal dollars to expand Medicaid, it wouldn't have cost us anything. And actually, the the deal is even sweeter now. And these Republican governors just will not take it. So that's but there's only twelve, Nicole. There's only twelve states left that have not expanded Medicaid. We're one of them. And I want you to know, not one, not one Republican state that has expanded Medicaid has now, after all these years, said, oh, you know what? That was a mistake. Right. Well, of course not. not. Of that's course first. not. That's, that's what I'm saying. But there's so many other things. Minimum wage. Look at how huge minimum wage passed by, right? And so many of us have been fighting. I remember doing the challenge with Dwight Bullard way back when <laughs> right. and living off the minimum wage for a whole week, yep. taking the bus go um, with my daughter, trying to go places. And then it was Thanksgiving and I was trying to buy the turkey and I was trying to buy everything. And I was like, I can't do this on the minimum wage. Like, right. I, I failed. I failed at the challenge because I couldn't do it. And even though I went to like the, the cheap grocery stores, I could do it. There's a video of me doing this. And, but my point is we should be proud of the fact that we fought for that. Instead of be like tepid, like, oh, I don't know, because, you know, there's some people that may not like the, the minimum wage. Now that's BS. People agreed with us. Right. But guess what? All those people that voted for minimum wage didn't vote for the Democrats. A bunch of them. A bunch of them didn't vote for the Democrats because it passed by a lot right. more. So right. this proves my point. Like, we can win people over, but we got to be proud of what we stand for. And we got to fight for the things we're fighting for. Right. But I also worry. Uh, I worry about the Democratic Party. For instance, in the 2020 elections, the Democrats got hurt in Miami-Dade County big time. And in the, in the, in the post-mortem, um, there were a lot of fingers pointing towards Spanish language radio, where, mm -hmm. you know, we know about right-wing hate talk radio, and everybody hears it, but Spanish language radio, right, ultra right wing, dominates the airwaves in Miami. And um, you, you, are, you were actually born in Colombia. You, you, you've got a slight accent still that I hear. That that, um, but it seems like there's nobody in the Democratic Party monitoring what they're saying there because I, I, I'm guessing, but they, they were talking about the creeping socialism and, oh, my God, you can't let Bernie Sanders get in because they're going to bring the Venezuela kind of socialism here. And that's not what it is at all. They use these scare tactics. Yeah. So the Cuban community in Miami went heavily Republican, which they're not, right? What, what's going on there? Oh, listen, I, I represent, I currently represent a Trump district. And and I want you to know that I, I'm actually quite popular in my district. And one of the reasons is because, again, I, I, I fight back to these stupid attacks. Yep. I don't, you know, it's like if you're in a fighting ring and they start hitting you and they hit your nose enough, these attacks are ridiculous. But you must fight back. Yes. And you must do it the right way as well. You can't just say I'm a capitalist. I mean, come on, like explain, like, here's what I do. First of all, I talk about my personal story, right? I talk about how my dad was a World War II fighter pilot in the U.S. Air Force, fought in World War II and Korea. And, and that's how he ended up in South America. Met my mom, so I'm really only half Colombian. But uh, my dad was from New Jersey. And my last name, Tadeo, is actually Italian. A lot of people don't know that. It's not Hispanic. <laughs> but and you're Jewish, right? And I'm Jewish too, yes. <laughs> so a lot of people don't know a lot of things about me, including that I, my first few years, I grew up in a farm. Uh, and, and, and it was that same farm where I learned how to milk a cow and how to ride a horse and all the things. It was the same farm where, unfortunately, the FARC terrorist group showed up and took over the farm, kidnapped my father. So that's how I ended up in Alabama, of all places. So I do... Uh, I do have a lot of experience with the Bible Belt, and um, and actually, I I do really well when I go to the Pensacola area and all the huh. northern oh, Florida area because I know too well in Pensacola. Oh, but I, 
<laughs> you have a Spanish accent. Wait till you hear me talking around people who have a Southern accent because no. my Southern accent comes out because I really learned English <laughs> oh, in Alabama. Funny. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, there's a lot of little things that people are going to find out about me as, as I as I get in this race. But I, how I fight all this and how I fought it, because, you know, they spend $10 million, the most they had ever spent on a state Senate race. And this was my special election, which I subsequently was reelected. But they had the guy the perfect guy, the perfect candidate, the guy that they were already grooming to be the next Marco Rubio. Mm. And nice guy, really nice guy. But you know what? They attacked me as a communist, a socialist, and a terrorist sympathizer. Oh, they didn't just stop there. <laughs> so all these things. And they even said that I, I had an office in China with my business because, as you know, I own a translation business. Right. And, and, and I remember I pushed back and I was like, well, first of all, my dad was kidnapped by the FARC. Let me tell you this. Let me tell you what it feels like to, do, to fight real terrorism. I've been there and done that. And, and to know that most of these groups, you know, these guerrilla groups are, are funded by the Castro brothers and now by Venezuela. And then, you know, about China, I just remember, I just remember saying, you know, I knew I was good in business, but I didn't know I was that good. <laughs> I can open an office in China when I've never even been to China. So I sort of make fun of that one. But but you have to fight back. You have to you just have to. answer back. And I went straight to camera and I spoke from the heart. Like, how dare you? How bad do you want to win this race that you're going that far and you're hitting where it hurts? And I'm telling you, we saw voters come out that we had never seen come out in a special election when Democrats just, we don't vote except for presidentials. And even then we have a hard time. But you brought up a really important point, And that is that we've lost a lot of the Hispanic vote. We've lost a lot of Miami-Dade. Yeah. And we must, this is another reason why I'm in this race. We must bring back those voters. We must speak to them. And I don't mean just in their language. Yes, I speak perfect Spanish. That was my first language. But I mean also speak their language, our language, proud of who we are, what we stand for, and how we're going to fight for them. And it's not just about an election. It's about fighting for them all the time and really delivering for them because these Republicans, all they care is about power and they haven't delivered anything except for the special interest that is truly who they represent because that's all they care about, retaining power. Yeah. Yeah. And and gaslighting the country. I mean, that's what gets me. We, we are facing so many problems on so many fronts from this infrastructure thing that can't pass because of infighting in the Democratic Party, because we've got two U.S. senators who think that their opinion counts more than 48 others, um, which I, blows my mind. It blows my mind. And I don't know why we have, you know, why we don't get rid of some of these antiquated rules. Filibuster. Hello. I mean, this is so ridiculous. But I will say this. I, as someone who represents a Trump district, I, you know, I do sometimes get a little upset at some of my, um, and I may get in trouble for this, but some of my fellow Democrats represent super seats, right? They get their, their elections get decided in a primary. And then they sit there and they vote some way that I, that, that sometimes I go like, really? Like, you know, I mean, I, I have to go back and explain my vote to some pretty conservative people. And I'm willing to do that because I know that I can explain my vote to anyone. And I'm not afraid. I mean, I, I really think I try to listen to all sides and make decisions that are that are for the good of everyone. And I just that bothers me a lot. Sometimes when people don't have the courage, again, even if it costs you something, it just like you need to have a backbone when you're in this, you need to not always do whatever the party says, because not always is it good. And so I don't know, I just, I'm very bothered by, by the stuff that's going on at the national level, like get it done already. Right. So are, are, you, are you more upset with, with Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema? Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema, like, this is ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Like, what already. are they doing? And, and frankly, I, I've never met Joe Manchin, but I did meet Kristen Cinema, and and it's it, it's been it's been really disappointed. But um, I mean, it, it seems like again, it can't 
be all about you. And that's how they're making it. And they're holding up everything and they're bringing down the president's poll numbers and the Democrats' chances. We've got big races tomorrow. They don't care about anybody else. Tomorrow, yes, exactly. They don't care about anybody but themselves. And that cannot be the case. That is unfortunately what we always do. And I will tell you, I I know this governor is going to have a lot of money. And it's going to be difficult because there's a lot of money riding on him being president. Oh God! And he's clearly oh, more. God help concerned. us all. No, but I'm I'm telling you, this is why this is so important. He's more concerned about being voters president. in Iowa than he is about Florida. I know. Clearly, based on everything he's doing, I agree. And this is why this is why I say I couldn't stand on the sidelines. We have to do this, and our math doesn't work. If we don't bring a coalition of voters, black and brown, a, a coalition of Democrats and eventually in the general MPAs, we yeah. have to win MPAs. Independence, no party affiliation. And I right. believe we have an opportunity to win some Republican women because this crap that they're trying with the whole Texas Thing. Well, the and, abortion thing. So that one yeah. more thing. I mean, we're running out of time. There's so many things I, I want to ask you, Annette. But but today, the Supreme Court heard not necessarily a challenge to the abortion law, but whether or not abortion providers should be able to challenge the law in Texas. But the fact that they even put this in place, and DeSantis is saying, yeah, we'll look at something like that here in Florida, too. What? Well, we have a Texas law already filed in the House, and... It, it is just it's, it's just amazing to me. I mean, this Texas law is awful. What they're doing is crazy. I mean, it is it is it is. I call it the rapist bill of rights because rapists have more rights. Mm-hmm. And again, I'm going to go back to something really interesting. And that is that that bill in Texas actually allows neighbors to turn in their fellow neighbors. Yep. You know, who to the government, you know, who does that? Cuba. <laughs> Cuba has a, a system where you in every Every street, they have a neighbor that gets paid by the government to turn in and tell them what the neighbors are doing. Wow. And and I was like, okay, wait, I thought you guys were like saying that we were going to bring because that that, they're gaslighting because they're they're <laughs> it's projection. Everything they do, they accuse us of doing, and it's just got to someone's got to expose them. And Annette today, hopefully you're that <laughs> person. Um, Annette today. Thank you for stepping up. We need to get DeSantis out of there. We need Democrats to take back control of the state. We need to get things back so Florida is no longer the joke of the country. I thank you. Thank you for having me. And let me just say that Gillum started at 3%. I started at 13 So at least I started a little better. But what we know is that when people find out they have an option, they have a, a real option between the current candidates and someone like me with my story, my values, my background. And frankly, as a mom with a kid in public school, small business owner, I still meet a payroll every two weeks. All these things are how we're going to bring the coalition of voters. And with someone like Val Demings at the top of the ticket and then Annette Tadeo at the top of the ticket, we've never tried a black and brown coalition. No. Ever. Two women, too. I believe that is the way that we're going to bring the voters that we need to bring in order to win in a state like Florida. And yes, Miami-Dade is going to be important, but the rest of the state is also important. But you can't add, you can't get to a win if you don't have 25 to 30 points in Miami-Dade to begin with. And that's really hard to do without winning the Hispanic vote. So I do have a plan to victory in the primary, but it is going to be a grassroots campaign. I know that. And that's why we're reaching out to everyone to say, please join our campaign. It is grassroots. Let's do it. We can get it done. I'm ready to do it. I'm excited and eager. Annette Tadeo, she is running for governor of Florida. Find her online at AnnetteTadeo.com or on Twitter at Annette Tadeo. Okay, I don't know about you, but I'm played out on politics for now. So we're going to talk about justice, social justice, and how one courageous athlete inspired countless others. Stick around. The Nation's Dave Zirin, author of The Kaepernick Effect, joins us next. I'm Nicole Sandler, your guest host today on the broadcast. Hey, this is Brad. What the public hears over the public airwaves matters. Without an informed electorate, we've got, well, we got what we have right now. 
We do our best on the broadcast five days a week to balance that with accurate reporting on issues that actually matter. We don't always get it right, but we try like hell to do so. And we do it all independently and without the influence of corporate or political funding. But we can't do it without you. Please don't presume others will step up. We need you to help us keep doing what Desi Doyen and myself try to do every day on the broadcast. Please help us continue to do so by going to bradblog.com slash donate to help keep the broadcast going and telling the truth over your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com slash donate. Don't wait. Please stop by today. Thanks. Five major corporations now own over 80% of all media in the United States, but they don't control us. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Your support helps us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations across the country. You can make a real difference by supporting independent media. This country ain't going to save itself, but we can all do it together. Join us at bradblog.com slash donate. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. What is democracy? What is the deal? What would it look like? How would it feel? Putting your shoulder to the wheel. Keeping it turning until justice is real. I'm Nicole Sandler, your guest host today on the broadcast, and I thought we'll take a different approach to social justice. And I'm thrilled to welcome to the program Dave Zirin. He is the sports editor of The Nation magazine. He hosts the Edge of Sports podcast, and his brand new book is out called The Kaepernick Effect, Taking a Knee, Changing the World. At first, when I was waiting for the book to arrive, I'm thinking, all right, so it's going to be a book about Colin Kaepernick and what he went through and how he got to this point where he took a knee and made a stand and cost himself a career, but he stood on principle. But that's not what this book is about at all. It's really about the effect of Kaepernick's action on athletes and regular citizens, but really, in this case, athletes from high school kids on up. And I got goosebumps reading it. I'm so impressed with young people today. I wasn't so impressed with maybe my generation, but the young people, I feel really confident in turning everything over to them because um, uh, they seem to know what's up. And it's evidenced by this. So what gave you the idea to do this, to do the effect of, of Kaepernick's actions? I was hanging out, just chewing the fat with 1968 Olympian John Carlos. And John Carlos, of course, raised his fist on the medal stand in 1968 in Mexico City in the most iconic image of the era, possibly. Mm -hmm. And I was talking with John and John said to me, you know, there were so many people at track meets after we came back from Mexico City who were just raising their fists all over the place. And the amateur historian in me was just like, what? <laughs> who, who are these people? What, you know, what, what, how did it affect their lives? And, and then I, I had to come to grips with the fact that, you know, wow, this was over 50 years ago. I'm not going to be able to really find folks and write about this. This is just getting lost to time. And frankly, lost the way so much of our history gets lost in this society where we only focus on sort of like these exceptional leaders and leave out the mass of people who do the work. I mean, one cannot name a social struggle in the history of this country where that's not the case. And I think that's very intentional because what it does is it makes a lot of people feel disempowered. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, oh, if I'm not this exceptional person, then I have no role to play in fighting for a better world. Because uh, I didn't come down from planet awesome to do it. And that's not how history works. That's not really how movement works. But far too often, it's how we're taught them. And certainly, I saw that in what John Carlos was saying to me. It's like, wow, there was this mass of people who were supporting you, but we don't hear about them. There's no book about them. So that got me thinking about all these young people who I'd read about and had written about over the last five years who had taken a knee. Uh, during the anthem to protest uh, police brutality and racial inequity, um, taking that knee during the anthem because uh, they really are protesting the gap between what this country promises and what it delivers 
to particularly black and brown communities. So uh, they were protesting the gap during the playing of the national anthem. And I'd seen all these one-off and written some of these one-off stories. And I started to think about it more holistically and thinking, wow, you know, if you think about it, you know, this was just what was ping-ponging inside my head. These stories took place all over the all over the country, red mm -hmm. states, blue states, small towns, big cities. I'd love to do a book where I, I center their voices and let people understand this as a national reaction to what Colin Kaepernick did. Because Kaepernick's great contribution to struggle, I would argue, is that he gave a method by which one could express their discontent, not just as athletes, but as citizens. Like if you or I, Nicole, were at anything from a swap meet to an NFL game and the national anthem was played, and we decided to take a knee, everyone would know what was going on. Right. You know, no right. one would think you lost a contact lens, for example. <laughs> right. Everyone would know what was going on. That's Colin Kaepernick's gift. And that's what a lot of these, particularly the young people, ran with. And most of them were in a state of dissatisfaction and anger uh, before uh, the Colin Kaepernick ever took a knee. But when he took a knee, they saw a method by which they could turn anger into action. Now, so that's what the book, it was just going to be this, this nice, modest book where I center their voices and they tell their stories. But it really changed for me uh, during the summer of 2020 after uh, the killing of George Floyd, yeah. because I started to think more about the demonstrations that took place, that were taking place. And this is during summer of 2020. I'd already interviewed a lot of the people for the book. And I was thinking like, wow, you know, I read, I'd read in the New York Times that, that collectively the George Floyd demonstrations were the largest demonstrations in the history of the United States wow. in terms of numbers and the fact that they occurred in all 50 states. And in the middle of COVID too, which adds a whole other different element on it. Yeah. Yes. Um, and it's just, I was thinking to myself, gosh, I wonder what all the folks that I spoke with are, are going through. So I started the process then of, you know, called my editor, said, hold off on the book and started calling them and asking, how are you responding to this? Do you feel vindicated because of your own situation, which was much more isolated when you took a knee? And I also asked, what are you doing? You know, as these historic protests are taking place and everybody with whom I spoke was an organizer. Hmm. They were out there in the streets. They were doing things. They were feeling optimistic. They were feeling vindicated. Like it was such a vibe of, okay, you know, we were, uh, we were doing this. We were, we were isolated. We were called all the terrible names you could think. Yeah, and then were. now the entire country is having this reckoning that we were trying to do years ago. And it, it that to me then changed my idea about the book because then I started to think, okay, many roads may have led us to the summer of 2020, but one of them runs straight through the playing fields of the United States, and that story needs to be told. And you tell it beautifully, as you tend to do. So, Dave Zirin, and you do, as evidenced by the comments I just read from the chat room. I'm not a sports person, but I always enjoy reading you, and I always enjoy talking to you. And thankfully, you've graced my shows for you know, the last 10 years or more, and I appreciate it. So this book is no different. But I got to say, this was a moment and an issue that resonated because Colin Kaepernick is not the first athlete to make a stand. You mentioned John Carlos, and that had some repercussions. But, you know, my husband spent over 40 years as a an agent for professional baseball players. And one of his clients was Carlos Delgado who was mm -hmm. a player for the Toronto Blue Jays and then the Mets. After 9-11, I guess they started standing for God Bless America or something. They started playing that at baseball games, which they never did before. And he just, he chose not to come out for that and just got criticized for it, but it never caught on. It, he never got accolades or props for doing it. It was just his personal thing. So wh what was it? Is it just because so many people were feeling this uh, feeling what exactly Colin Kaepernick was protesting because it, it was is. a perfect storm. 
perfect for storm. Colin Kaepernick. An absolutely perfect storm. I mean, first and foremost, you had a movement in the streets in mass numbers. Second of all, that summer, Colin Kaepernick first did not stand for the anthem in August of 2016. And that summer was particularly volatile because of the police killings of Alton Sterling and Philando Castile. And they were both killings were videotaped and both killings went viral, which of course is very traumatizing for folks. So there were protests, there was anger. um, And Colin Kaepernick was feeling that anger too. And, you know, so, so that was one factor that created the perfect storm is this, this existence of a movement that was absolutely on fire at the time. You know, the second thing that made it huge is that this is the National Football League. You know, it's the closest thing to a national religion that we have in this country right. or a, a national language even that we have in this country. Closest thing to a monoculture that we have in this country at this point. And, uh, you know, we don't all watch the same shows anymore. We don't all listen to the same music. Oh. I mean, it's very, things are sliced very, very and fragmented. Yes. Yes. And football is one of those last things that brings a lot of different eyeballs together. And of course, the most prominent position in football is quarterback. Mm -hmm. So here you have a quarter and also the NFL is known for its hyper patriotic excess, particularly after 9-11. So here you have Colin Kaepernick challenging all of that by refusing to stand for the anthem. And the amplification of what he was doing was just through the roof because it was the National Football League. So, but there's another element in this perfect storm, and that's the very existence of Donald Trump, not to mention the entire presidential race that was going on in August of 2016. Right. Because for for Colin Kaepernick, the fact that there was a presidential election going on was a 1,000% an irrelevancy to what he was doing, what he was doing. You know, it had much more to do with Alton Sterling and Philando Castile than it did Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. Um, but Donald, but I think here, to be very frank, you see some of the differences between the two parties in this country because it was immediately an issue everybody was talking about. And the Donald Trump campaign's response was, we're going for blood. This is exactly what we want. You know, we want black football player. He's got a big afro. We are going to hold him up as, you know, basically uh, the symbol of everything that's wrong with America. Unpaid, and we're going to ref- we're going to make sure we never talk about police brutality or any the issues that Colin was trying to raise. It's we're going to make this about patriotism. We're going to make this about the troops. Donald Trump called for Colin Kaepernick to be fired from yeah. his job. Mm-hmm. Um, he he uh, even made reference to Kaepernick leaving the country. Um, you know, you don't like it here. You go somewhere else. Right. I mean, and, and come on, everybody knows what that means. That's, that's go back to Africa when that's you right. say that. Of course. The black person. So it's just openly racist. And then on the flip side, instead of having another political party say that's outrageous, that racism cannot be tolerated. We support the right of anybody, whether they're a football player or whoever to dissent, you know, kind of like the speech that Michael Douglas gives in an American president defending flag burning, <laughs> you know, and it's like, that's Hollywood fantasy. Yep. What the democratic party is. Um, instead you had a very tepid response and I'm not at all putting all of this on Hillary Clinton. There was a tepid response from everybody in the leadership of the Democratic Party who was asked about this. It was basically their line was, well, you know, we support, but we don't. We wish he wouldn't, but he is. And that left, uh, further left uh, Colin alone sort of on the island doing this. So that perfect storm sent it all just into the stratosphere in terms of as an issue. And it was, today is the five-year anniversary of Colin Kaepernick being on the cover of Time Magazine on one knee. Wow. Um, and, and it was just, we just recently passed the five year anniversary of the first time he took a knee. So, you know, so in very, very quickly to me, that just indicates how quickly this mushroomed into being a national story. And for some of those people I spoke with, like, I'm just thinking of one young man, Rodney Axon Jr., who was a football player and he was the first person to take a knee after Colin Kaepernick. All he was waiting for was a way to show his discontent. He was already, I mean, I, I, you know, Rod, it's Rodney's voice on the pages of my book. And Rodney talks about, and I interviewed dozens and dozens of people, and Rodney was one of them. And Rodney was just very straight up. 
with me about the amount of racism he experienced on the football team, about how upset he was about what was happening in broader society, about how upset he was about how he was largely treated in a, a predominantly white suburb of Cleveland. And so he decides, as soon as Colin Kaepernick takes a knee, for Rodney, it's a eureka moment. Like, I, like he can't walk out of his house and go to the Black Lives Matter movement at the mall in Brunswick, Ohio. So what can he do? He can take a knee during the playing of the anthem of the football game. And as soon as he does it, an absolute uproar erupts. And much more of the book is about the aftermath of taking a knee than the right. act of taking the knee itself. And the backlash Rodney got was very intense. It was awful. He got death threats, racial threats, um, all sorts of things he had to deal with as a high school kid. I mean, it was so bad and so direct that you know, he told me he was walking his elementary school age sister to, to school every day for fear for fear that harm might become her. Oh and, my. and and that to me was the first of a common thread that exists in the book because you know you have all these young people and if you think about what they're actually doing, they're engaging in an act of peaceful civil disobedience. Right. Is what they're doing. And the response is not wow you're raising some good points. Let's have a discussion. Or, gee, I still don't agree with you, but let's disagree without being disagreeable. No, the response is violence. Right. Threat of violence. And that to me is, you know, I wrote this book before all this recent stuff with either the masks or the, uh, you know, critical race theory stuff. And and you see this on the, on the side of the right that, that, it's like they think violence is an appropriate and proper political reaction to somebody saying to them, gee, maybe this world isn't the way it's supposed to be. Yeah. yeah. You know, I, we're speaking with Dave Zyra and the new book is The Kaepernick Effect, Taking a Knee, Changing the World. And, you know, th- I was mostly moved by the high school kids because, I, you know, these kids are so tough they're so strong and they're so aware of what's going on around them and so you tell the story you you deal with a number of them but i want to focus in on garfield high school in seattle um and and some of the kids you talk about and the coach there and one of the kids went to the coach and said you know i want to do this and the coach said well we need to have a talk about this first and they really talked it out and talked about the issues why don't you tell us because you obviously i read it you wrote it so Tell, tell us what they went through and how the process went for them to decide to do this. Well, first and foremost, so folks know Garfield High School in Seattle is a pretty remarkable place. Uh, it's the school of Quincy Jones. It's the school of Jimi Hendrix. Wow. It's a school that in an a, a overwhelmingly white city, uh, Garfield High School is like a fulcrum of black arts and black culture. And it makes sense, therefore, that this would be the school where first players on the football team would say, we want to be part of this movement against racism. And this predominantly white football team said, we're going to take a knee um, because if there's a problem that affects one of our teammates, it affects all of us. Mm -hmm. And so the coach, Joey Thomas, said, well, we're only going to do this if we do it as a team. So let's have a team discussion about this. And sure enough, through the process of debate and discussion, as well as an analysis of the national anthem and its history and the verses we do not sing. Uh, The third verse, which they talked about at length, right? The infamous third verse. And with all of that, um, they all decided to take a knee. Now, you would think that in a city like Seattle, so liberal, that they would be feted for this. But the reality was um, Coach Thomas, he... Uh, had his tires slashed of his car. Uh, actionable death threats were called into the school. Uh, students received individual threats. But then on the flip side, it also spread to the soccer team, to the softball team, uh, young women athletes, young men athletes. They were all doing it now in solidarity with this besieged football team. And it really ends with Coach Thomas being forced out of his job. He now coaches in Florida. And believe me, I tracked down that story and spoke to people at the uh, superintendent's office wow. in Seattle. And, and it was like, ugh. right. It was yes. like trying to talk to Nixon about the uh, Kennedy assassination. Wow. I mean, it was like under lock and key. They would not speak about why Joey Thomas lost his job. 
And uh, they would just refuse to comment no matter how much I pushed. And Joey Thomas was like, yeah, I lost my job because I was part of these young people who took a knee and I didn't smack them down. Instead, I tried to raise them up. And the, the story of Coach Joey Thomas, the, the, the story of a coach named Bob Berg, who I speak to, and he's um, a coach at Denby High School in Detroit, uh, Coach Preston Brown in Camden, New Jersey. I was, I, it was very, very intentional and purposeful for me to talk to coaches as well. Because I want people to see that not all coaches, because so many of these stories have coaches who just, you know, either stab their kids in the back or the front when they take that knee and act terribly. And so I wanted to give like these positive case examples of what it is for a coach to actually be an educator Mm -hmm. and not somebody who's just in it for themselves. You know, this former Baltimore Colt who does coaching seminars named Joe Ehrman, who's brilliant. Joe once said to me, there are two kinds of coaches, the transformational and the transactional. The transactional is really just in it for themselves and how it makes them feel. The transformational, are they're in it for the team and they want to see the team develop as young men and young women um, as part of the process of being a coach. It's very moving. And yes, he's down here in Florida now. He's at FAU. The fact that he had to leave Seattle of all places because the reaction was so tough. And these kids dealt with it too. At first, some people were supportive and then they turned on them as the nation heated up. And you tell so many different stories. Dave Zirin, there's one section that I flagged that I want to share. And it has to do with uh, the players of Minneapolis North. And, sure. and somebody named Marjan Sirdar. And Marjan Sirdar said this. These same people who ridiculed these kids for taking a knee are the people that said, oh, you could have protested peacefully. The same mother who denied equity. The same mother who forced the governor's hand to reopen the state and send my people back to work to die for $10 an hour so they can clip these mother nails. These are my youths that are in the street on the front lines. These are my youths that are in the essential jobs. These are my former students. They took a knee because their parents have been on the front lines of the wage war their whole lives and they saw it. Their community has been invaded by these terrorist organizations their whole life. Those kids tried to protest peacefully four years ago. Cap, he tried to take a knee. Now what did they say? Why don't you do it peacefully? Why you got to be looting? Well, we did it peacefully, mother. You threw the man out of the NFL and called him and the players that supported him sons of bitches. These young people who took a knee, I'm sure a lot of them are out there protesting too, 100%, and maybe a few of them burning some down. The powers that be literally stole land. They extracted labor. They stole people's liberty. They ended people's lives, and then they denied them justice. Then the politicians are like, why are you burning down? They're blaming us. Order, they're saying. Order over justice. Colin Kaepernick, this was the definition of a peaceful protest. These kids peacefully protested. People tried to peacefully protest. In fact, I would say they did. And the violence and the looting, for the most part, was not started by them, but by others who were instigating it. They tried to protest peacefully. And this was their reward. Exactly. I mean, sometimes I feel like, and this is an obvious point, that we live just in parallel realities in this country. You know, I, I, and I live in a reality where 2020, the summer thereof, was a remarkable moment, a historical moment, a turning point, the largest protest in the history of the United States, all 50 states. And yet there are people in this country who view it as, oh, this was just people burning and looting right. down their communities. And, you know, it, it, they're lying and we're not. Let me just put that out there straight up they're lying and we're not so then you have to ask yourself uh why are they lying and the answer is quite frankly is fear yeah i mean because this is what happens in this country you have the largest demonstrations in history look what's come out of it you know not laws against uh you know racism or try to address police violence no but stuff about the the critical race theory hysteria which is just the biggest load of hooey in the world and so clearly and transparently um just a load of crap i mean it's a it's a legal theory and they're saying it's being taught in elementary schools it is not and they're teachers who don't know what they're talking about like and what they're really talking about when you drill down to it is they don't want 
uh, white children to learn about slavery. That's right. And in Texas, they were even rewriting the the books, the history books, to say to to equate slavery with a form of immigration, to take Martin Luther King out of the history books. It's stunning. And that's what we're dealing with. All of this stuff, though, and we don't we never talk about this enough, certainly not in the mainstream media, that all of this critical race theory stuff, all of the voter attack on voting rights. It's a reaction to 2020. That's right. That's right. It's a reaction. It it is a backlash reaction to the fact that, whoa, the other side is getting organized. And whoa, there are a lot of white kids on those demonstrations. Whoa. You know, all of that threatens them. What they're threatened by more than anything else is this young generation with whom I speak with, who made me so optimistic in the process of putting this book together. And this generation is less tolerant of intolerance than any generation in the history of the United States. And the fear of them is hysterical. Right. And good. I say more power to them. I'm excited for this next generation to take over. And I say, bring them on. Uh, Dave Zirin, the book is The Kaepernick Effect, Taking a Knee, Changing the World. It's a great book. I love it. Thank you for writing it. And Dave Zirin, it's so great to talk to you. Thank you again for joining us today. You can find Dave Zirin online at edgeofsports.com and on Twitter at edgeofsports. And that brings us to the end of another edition of the broadcast. I'm Nicole Sandler. Thank you for hanging with me today. You can always check out my show anytime at nicolesandler.com. It's that easy. Until next time, I will quote Brad Friedman again with feeling. Good luck, world. <laughs>